Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 26. Listen for what God is saying to you. You have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is who's angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the government council, governing council. And if they say you fool, they will be in danger of fire. Therefore, if you bring your... If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First make things right with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Be sure to make friends quickly with your opponents while you are the while you, while you are with them on on the way to court. Otherwise, they will haul you before the judge. The judge will turn you over to the officer of the court, and you will be thrown into prison. I say to you all the seriousness that you won't get out of there until you've paid the very last penny. May God add a blessing to the understanding and living out of this scripture. Why don't we come together in a word of prayer? God, thank you so much for the gift um, to come together and struggle and wrestle with what it means to follow you. We thank you for the ways that we show each other clues in our lives, um, whether that is through testimony or through just being with one another um, enough to see your testimony lived out. We pray, I pray that you would ready our hearts to receive your word in whatever way your spirit leads us to receive it. Pray that you would, um, in spite of me, uh, work through me so that others might grow more closely to those people that you have created and called them to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, one of the unique or at least distinct realities of friendships and especially dating, I think, um, in this day and age is the phenomenon of ghosting. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about paranormal activity. Uh, in line with our cultural practice of turning nouns into verbs, ghosting has become the term that describes when someone basically disappears from your life. It happens especially but not exclusively in the context of dating. You send a text and they stop responding calls, pigeon carrier, messages of any kind, it all goes unanswered. And depending on who has, uh, what has happened in the relationship, the whole experience of it can leave a person feeling anything from confused and unsure to disappointed or discarded. Now, there are plenty of instances when ghosting didn't truly happen, right? Their phone melts down and they lose all their numbers. Something weird happened with their message and it got lost on the journey from phone to satellite five times. Uh, the person witnessed a horrific crime and had to go into the witness protection program. The person died and literally became a ghost. Sure, all or any of these events could have happened, but more likely than not, the reason is much more simple. They were too chicken to be upfront about not wanting to see you anymore. 
And as it turns out, this variety of chickenhood, especially in the context of dating, is actually a pretty common experience. So common that someone wrote a very practical blog post about it. I learned about this post from our very own Grant Crusoe, who wanted to be a grown man in his own dating relationships, who didn't want to become one of those guys who just dropped off the face of the earth. And so when he came across 15 texts you can send someone instead of ghosting them, he had a perfect resource to draw from. Isn't this handy? Someone already did the work for you. Here are some examples. Hey, I think you're great but I don't really see this progressing in the future. Thanks for going out for, with me recently. I thought a lot about it and just don't think we're compatible. It's nothing personal, but I thought I should let you know. Or, sorry, I don't think I'd like to see you again. <laughs> it's nothing personal, just not feeling it. Hope you understand. Or, hi, I think you're great, but more so in a friend way. We've all been there. And so on and so forth, right? So it's slightly painful to send some, someone something like this because you don't want to make anyone feel rejected, right? Or worse, if you're a straight woman, you don't want to have some guy like go all creepy on you. Um, I get it, right? But there is something. <laughs> we have a testimony in here. Um, but there is something, right, underlying all of this ghosting stuff that I think is worth paying attention to. I think that ghosting is the modern form of an ancient truth about human relationships. Having a tough conversation with someone is difficult, and we'd rather not do it. I know this for lots of reasons, and one of those reasons is our scripture passage for today. Here, in the very red letters, we have Jesus essentially telling people, do not ghost. Don't be going about your business with God when you know well and good you've got some unfinished business to attend to with someone else. God will not be an alibi for your cowardice. This was the unedited version before Matthew cleaned it up. What we see in this passage is a clear statement of how Jesus interprets his tradition. At the beginning of the chapter, before our passage for today, the passage that folks refer to often as the Beatitudes, the upside-down blessings of the gospel, um, we, we read uh, Jesus kind of casting his vision. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In so many ways, these are the places and the people that Jesus is saying he is aligned with. He's saying these people and this lifestyle are the lens through which I'm choosing to interpret God's laws and our call as partners with God. And so by the time we get to this midpoint of the chapter, this is where we start to see how that lens shapes his interpretation of the law. It's not that the law doesn't exist or that it's not important. It's more that he's trying to help people understand it in a different way than they have been taught. Uh, maybe a little bit uh, d similar to what uh, Grant shared in his own testimony, actually. He's trying, uh, Jesus is trying to help people understand the purpose of it. And so much of why the law exists is less for punishment, he's saying, and more for helping the world to flourish. Remember, this is the end goal, right? Wholeness of life for all. But Jesus senses and has observed that the focus has shifted or maybe been weighted more toward the avoiding punishment, avoiding judgment end of things when it comes to the law. He says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. And here, Jesus is doing two things. First, he's reinterpreting the law for folks to see it in a new way. And secondly, he's trying to call out a culture, I think, of spiritual laziness. As long as I don't murder, I'm good, right? Wrong. 
He's calling people to a deeper level of engagement in what a faith life is supposed to cultivate, healthy relationships. He's trying to get people to focus less on the actions and more on the relational problem that's underlying a conflict. Obviously, actions matter, right? Murder isn't cool. Do I need to say this? And yes, it is worse than ghosting someone. But avoiding murder, right, is not the bar we're trying to achieve. I mean, if that is as good as things got, we'd really be in a state of trouble, right? So Jesus is trying to get people out of this punishment framework and to think at a higher level, a more critical level. God is concerned with our actions for sure, and that means something, right? But God is equally concerned with the motivations that drive our actions and shape our relationships. And God knows how we do, right? God knows how we can run these mental gymnastics to get us thinking that we're good and pure and totally righteous. I talked about this last week, right? Things like information avoidance, confirmation bias, desirability bias, right? And we do these things like go to church and feed the homeless and run 5Ks to raise money for children in Africa, all the while avoiding or ignoring or mentally erasing the mess we might be running up in our relationships. And Jesus is done with it. He calls us out. I refuse to be your justification for not setting things right. You best not bring your sacrificial beef to the temple before you've worked out your beef you've got with the people in your life. It's not enough for us to bring our official sacrifice to God's altar in the temple. We also have to have relational sacrifices to God's altar in our lives. Our relationships, our thoughts, those behaviors and patterns of living out our lives that no one else sees, All of it, God brought to, with as much commitment, uh, all of it brought to God with as much commitment, faithfulness, and heart that we say that we have in our spiritual practices. And often what this means is naming out what has been operating on the down low in our lives, even if it really makes us feel uncomfortable or or vulnerable. Now, most of you know I spent um, a few weeks in Germany recently to attend the World Communion of Reformed Churches, and I was one of seven delegates from my denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA. Now, Reformed Churches are all about confession, not so much like the tiny booth kind, right, but more like the we've got to name the things that we've been doing through a long and detailed statement kind of confession. So in the Reformed tradition, this is one of the ways that we try to kind of keep it 100, right, and and stay honest with ourselves. One of the confessions that was referred to a lot at this gathering I was at was called the, the Accra Confession, creatively named because it was adopted when the communion last met in Accra. Um, the confession was a powerful one because it really named the ways that the global church has committed harm against itself, especially in terms of economic practices. The confession named the ideologies of neoliberal economics as being deeply idolatrous. How some members of Christ's body, mostly the members in the global north, have bought into and benefited from these idolatries at the expense of creation and those members of the body who live in the global south. And that we have put our trust in money before God and that we have actively harmed one another in the pursuit of that idolatry, that we we have actively um, pursued pursued that idolatry needed to be named and laid out in detail if the communion was really going to be a fellowship of believers. Because it was folks from the global north and the global south who were saying, we're a communion together, and we can't just be a happy, happy family and pretend like we're not hurting each other every other day of the week. Now, that confession was developed after 10 years of research, 
study, and writing. And as it turns out, just confessing it hasn't put an end to the economic and environmental violence that we have participated in, but it has served to keep us honest in our commitments with one another. When the communion met this last time, like I said, the confession was referred to regularly when we talked about how we would move forward as a body. We aspire to do better and to be better by one another and by God. So let's not forget how we have fallen short in our relationships. For those who had been hurt, it was a sign of hope. And for those who had done more of the hurting, it was a sign of renewed commitment. But we don't have to go to Germany in order to see how the body of Christ is trying to mend itself. Even at UVC, we're in the process of completing our anti-racism audit. Over the last nine years, members from all four sites have been diligently gathering data, reflecting on the ways that we have lived into our anti-racist values and the ways that we have fallen short. And we do this not just to learn how to do better, but so that we can really acknowledge the ways that we have participated in harm. Because as it turns out, when we've been hurt, hearing folks own what they've done and grappling with how we will move forward together is part of the healing process. It's not easy and it's not fun, but it is necessary, not only in our relationships with one another, but actually also in our relationship with God. We're not going to be real with each other. How can we be real with God? Really. But Jesus knows how hard it is to live out the law of love, and that's why he won't let us wiggle our way out of it. His rabbinic colleagues went the route of going harder on punishment to keep people in line, but Jesus chooses a different approach. Empathy. Courage turning toward. Now, if you've been through our Gottman Seven Principles um, for Making Marriage Work workshop, um, which we'll be holding in a couple of weeks, sign up today, um, you'll remember that one of the primary ways that our relationships stay healthy is this practice of turning toward rather than turning away. Turning toward is just that, choosing to respond to one another, choosing to try and try again and again and again. Turning toward not only helps us um, have stronger connections with each other, it actually also helps us have stronger connections with God. And an added benefit is that it keeps us human. These days, it's far too easy just to disappear from each other's lives. It's too tempting to ghost on each other, leaving behind a trail of unresolved issues, aborted closures, a constant nagging sense that we've done something wrong, someone wrong, or that someone has done us wrong. And carrying that with us. We can do better. We must do better. Not just because it's the good and decent thing to do. We must do better because it's the faithful thing to do. Choosing to treat each other with dignity, choosing to keep our relationships right, even if that means ending them right, might feel like it takes courage, but really I think what it takes is love. Not necessarily really love for the other person, although that's a bonus, right? But a deep sense that we are loved, a rootedness in that, a, that when we, when we trust and believe that we are loved, then we can, are set free to kind of act from a place of belovedness rather than a place of anxiety. You hear that? Who do you need to make things right with? Who do you need to make things right with? I want you to think about that reluctantly digging their name out from your memory banks. What is one step that you can begin to making things right? To, to clear the slate. Think about that.
uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? Confessing to each other is hard. But growing a trail of avoidance, alienation, and broken relationships, and letting that trail you your entire life, it's a lot harder. Let's be people who act from love and belovedness. Let's preserve each other's dignity and our own dignity in the process and quit ghosting on each other. After a while, we might feel a little less haunted. Let's pray. God, we thank you that for all of the ghosting that we try to do on you, that you don't ghost on us. We thank you that you pursue us because you love us and help us to trust and believe in that love and that belovedness enough to be able to seek um, closure with one another, enough to be able to address the hard conversations that we need to have and preserve not just our own dignity, but the dignity of those around us as well. Help us to be people who can do that and who will do that. Grant us the things that we need to be people who reflect wholeness of life and deep relationship, if not with each other, then at least with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We try, we fail. We're too little, too late. We wish we could walk away. We hurt, we're hurt. Nothing seems to work. We don't know what to say. Forgive us, forgive us. We know not what we do. Be with us, be with us. We don't know what to do. We're hurt, we hurt. Nothing seems to work. We don't know what to say. Forgive us, forgive us. We know not what we do. Be with us, be with us. We don't know what to do. What's wrong, what's right? Things too little, too late. We don't know what to say. Forgive us, forgive us. We know not what we do. We
We don't know how to pray here. Stay here. All we hope is that you're here. Help us seek justice. Love mercy. Don't know what to do.